future generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The model of future gen is very much back to that language of business disciplines for social purpose. So what's not to love about a model where you access one of the best funds management operators in the business and you can connect that to thoughtful, strategic, long-term and impactful giving. I'm Caroline Gurney, Chief Executive of Future Generation, and that was Michael Trail. Michael is an absolute legend in Australia's not-for-profit circles, but that's not how he started out. Like many other Harvard grads, Michael went into investment banking. He spent 14 years at Macquarie Bank, where he successfully co-founded the bank's private equity division. But a career that prized profit above all else just did not sit comfortably with him. In 2002, at the peak of his career, Michael jumped ship to the not-for-profit sector. His idea was to bring corporate rigor to the charitable world. He was founding CEO of Social Ventures Australia, and he took a revolutionary approach to closing the gap between privilege and poverty. These days, Michael chairs the Paul Ramsey Foundation and the federal government's social impact investing task force, among his many other roles. In 2010, he was made a member of the Order of Australia in recognition of his service to the not-for-profit sector. I'm thrilled to have Michael on the podcast. Let's jump into it. Lovely to be with you, Caroline. This podcast is called Twofold because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We aim to generate wealth for our shareholders by giving them access to leading Australian and global fund managers with no fees. And we change the lives of young Australians by investing around 30 million a year in youth at risk and youth mental health not-for-profits. So Michael, and I ask all of our guests this question, What's your twofold? What are your two main purposes in life? That's such a great question. I'm glad I had a bit of advance notice to think about it. The only way I can make sense of existence, Caroline, is one purpose, and it's a, it's a, it's kind of at a spiritual level. It's that uh, we're put on the planet to try and be of service. The uh, the bit of scripture that speaks to me is Matthew 25, and it's the parable of the talents. The idea that you're given certain gifts. And if we're born in families and in a country that has as many opportunities as this country provides us, the best way of utilising that and making sense of existence is how do you how do you use those gifts to be of service, service around family, around community, and in what you do. And uh, in a lifelong and continuing journey uh, of understanding and trying to make sense of existence, it's that which speaks to me most powerfully. You, you have definitely done that. And we're obviously going to talk about your work, which is, um, to me, really reshaped the Australian philanthropy and the not-for-profit landscape. But before we focus on that, I want to know what really first sparked your interest in, in, in doing more and giving back. So I always uh, think of that great Jesuit line that if you show me the young person at the age of seven, That'll give you a pretty good predictive direction about what the values of the adult will be. So at seven, I was a kid who grew up in country town, Victoria, in Morwell, uh, in a loving family. My father, who was a deep influence in many, many respects, uh, was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school. And he became a man committed to the community and a high school teacher and principal. Mum and dad were both great contributors to community. 
it was a pretty diverse community, a community with a, a pretty decent spread of social challenges where there were a bunch of kids and families who struggled. And I think that uh, I think that sits with you and um, courtesy of the love and opportunities uh, my parents provided, uh, my path took me to Melbourne University and Harvard Business School and a career at Macquarie. But I think all the way through the set of values around that and, and the idea that contributing to community and trying to make some sort of positive difference uh, sticks with you. We recently saw each other at Gama, an amazing um, cultural exchange in an armed land in the Northern Territories. And a lot of the conversations that we were both you know, listening to and engaged in was really about the Indigenous voice to Parliament, you know, how the Constitution may change and what would Australians be asked to vote on. I'm really interested in in your view and how important it is for Australian leaders and philanthropists and companies, you know, to get behind the voice and and how effective that will be. What are your thoughts on that? It was a great shared opportunity to to be at Gama. It's the first Gama that I've attended, and and what a propitious Gama it was. I thought our Prime Minister spoke eloquently and movingly in framing why. The proposal for the voice was so powerful. I think that's been done in a, in an astute way, um, and I do think it has the capacity, assuming the referendum passes, uh, to make a real difference. Uh, there's some controversy about that, as we're all aware. The specific shape of the voice has been the subject of an ongoing debate, uh, but my strong my strong belief is that it's something that the community should support, and I think it can make. A difference, and, and if I can just spell out briefly in in a practical sense why I think that matters, I had the subsequent opportunity to spend some time in Darwin. The Paul Ramsey Foundation, which I chair, is a four billion dollar foundation that's a legacy of the extraordinary generosity of Paul Ramsey, who, when he passed away, left the, most of his shareholding in Ramsey Healthcare. And so we do a range of work up there. The focus on is, is on issues of exclusion and disadvantage. And subsequent to Gama, I had the, I must say, scarifying opportunity to spend time visiting the Dondale Juvenile Justice Prison. And that afternoon, I spent time visiting the Darwin Prison. And here's some data, and I'll come back, Caroline, to answer specifically why I think the voice can matter um, with some pretty horrifying data. So, In the Northern Territory, there's a population of 248,000 with nearly 2,000 people in jail. Population of the Territory is 31% Indigenous. 86% of the jail population is Indigenous. And having visited those sites and Dondale uh, houses, mostly Indigenous kids aged 12, 13, 14, And having visited that site, uh, none of those kids, in my view, should be there. And the idea of alternative pathways to justice and engaging with community and the Indigenous elder voice as part of the solution to that, I think, is profoundly important. So let's come back to why I think the voice matters. I think the voice is an act of recognition and respect that's important. I'm of the belief that, yes, of course, while there'll be legislative challenges in making sure the voice has a practical shape that can make a difference. Frankly, uh, we have to we have to try it, and things could not be much worse uh, than they exist. You know, particularly given the data that I quoted. And 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 as a quick supplementary 
positive to that, you know, one of the things we're exploring with the Ramsey Foundation had on, there are a range of alternative justice programs. Pre-COVID, I visited an extraordinary site in Alice Springs, which is a community elder connected centre that provides support and resources for 20 Indigenous women who've been in jail. And two and a half years down the track, the normal trajectory of uh, people who are in those desperate and sad circumstances is that there's a really high incidence of repeat offending. But all but two of those women two and a half years down the track are on pathways to healing. They're not back in jail. They're doing well. And this tells us that if we listen to the voices respectfully of running alternative programs, we can actually change the trajectory of lives and outcomes for our Indigenous brothers and sisters. So my strong view is that we need to get behind it. Thank you. I mean, I, I love hearing you talking about the work that the Ramsey Foundation is doing. I mean, how how important do you think it is for donors and for foundations to be transparent about their giving, um, to encourage others to get on board? Because I, I see often a reluctance in Australia um, for donors to put their hand up and say, this is what we're doing. Um, do we need to be more forthcoming? I think that's a really important question and, and one of the obligations we feel at the Paul Ramsey Foundation is to be clear about what we're trying to do and to share what we're doing that works and and most importantly, what doesn't, what's challenging. And that's an obligation we feel is the country's largest foundation and it's in the hope of encouraging a culture of what I think of as being very important and that is strategic and thoughtful giving, which is accountable. Um, I've been involved over much of the 20 years since I left Macquarie Bank in 2002 when I was founding Chief Executive of Social Ventures Australia and at the heart of the work of Social Ventures Australia or SVA was the idea of how do we in thoughtful and relevant ways bring business disciplines and some of the accountability that we're used to in the corporate world to the idea of thoughtful, strategic and accountable philanthropic giving. And I think that's really important. I think the idea that we share in what we're doing, that we learn from what is not working, is just rational. I learned that in a in a 15-year business career at Macquarie. You want to understand what's working. You know, the, the great line of my friend and mentor at Macquarie, David Clark, who was the founding chair, is you don't want to put good money after bad in the private equity business that I was uh, involved as a co-founder of. And I believe very strongly, why should that logic not apply in the in the philanthropic and social purpose world? You know, my belief is that's the most important world there is. And if we're funding things, I think the idea of being transparent and being clear about that is hugely important. And I think there's a there's another part of that question, Caroline, which is while I get and respect that many givers uh, have a shyness about sharing what they do, I do think we are well served if people, and particularly those who are involved in some of the larger donations, that they share that, both because there's an advertorial in what they're doing, which is good, and I believe encourages others to give generously. But that idea of sharing what works and what doesn't, I just think is critically important and what surely has to be an important question. Is that money making a difference or not? I'm really with you there. Um, actually, Mike Baird, I mean, as you might know, the former Premier of New South Wales, he has just come on board as chair of Future Generation Australia. And as he explained it for the reasons why he joined, he wants to 
you know, use the role to be a bridge between corporate Australia and the not-for-profit sector. You know, you've championed this space, as you've said, for, for many years. So what do you see as the, sort of the next opportunities for business and not-for-profits to work together in Australia? And, and what a fabulous appointment uh, and terrific that Mike's uh, taking on the chair role there. I think Mike's a poster child in terms of his own experience, both in government uh, as a leader in the business world and uh, more re- and, and, and as, as CEO of Hammond Cares. He's, he's somebody who knows how to work across the sectors effectively. And to answer your question, I, I do believe that there's great strengths across each of each of the sectors and we're more likely to be able to drive outstanding outcomes if we can draw on the collaborative partnerships and the potential that exists you know while there's while there's some this might sound somewhat cliched I do think there's a truth in the fact that the corporate sector can be pointy but it's very accountable you know you know and I know that if you work in the corporate world it is results driven and I think there's something the social purpose sector can learn from that equally I think from the social purpose sector, the notion of client-centred, high-quality human services, uh, preparedness to listen, patience in understanding what issues are, there's much in that that's relevant and helpful in the corporate world. So before we actually go to what you, what you think businesses can learn more from the not-profit sector, I'm, I'm interested in your book. I mean, in 2016, you, you wrote a book called Jumping Ship about your experience of moving from the corporate world into the social purpose sector. You've since said that you had a lot of discomfort with the title because it applies a jump from the dark side to the good side. And I'm interested in this because personally, I find the distinctions between the business world and the social purpose world are often quite artificial and and unhelpful. And I think we in corporates often talk about the idea of harnessing the power of corporate Australia to do good. You know, do you think that's true? And what are your thoughts on it? Look, I'm I'm in heated agreement that this idea that there's some kind of uh, black and white divide between those two worlds. I mean, at a personal level, I used to find it mildly irritating and my wife particularly so that, you know, it was though I'd put on a hair shirt and been a do-gooder when I moved from Macquarie Bank to Social Ventures in 2002. And uh, I'm, I'm, I was then proud and continue to be very proud of the time that I had at Macquarie. It was a high quality organisation. It had a very strong set of culture and values that I was proud to be part of. You know, so the idea that all of a sudden I have an epiphany and I and I turn from this Darth Vader from the corporate world to this do-gooder in the social purpose world just didn't sit comfortably with me at all. Um, and it was reinforced in the work we did at SVA, I mean, the the intel inside in SVA in many ways was the contribution and generosity of many people who brought skills and funding and capability uh, from a business background to support the work that SVA was doing. You know, so the idea that there's some sort of some sort of divide between those two things, I think, is uh, unfair and a, and a bit irrational. And I can, you know, we can think of plenty of examples of high quality ethical and well-run businesses. You know, in my 15 years at Macquarie in the PE business, uh, we invested close to half a billion dollars in 42 companies. And there was no coincidence to me that the outstanding performers financially were those businesses where they were really well-run. They were run by leaders who were ethical, who cared deeply about an ethic of customer service, who really cared about the people they hired and looked after them with a deep 
authenticity. Uh, so, you know, those ethics and values, I think the idea that there's some some sort of sharp divide, I, I, I don't think is fair or appropriate. You know, back to what I was saying before, I think if we can harness the best of both worlds, we can make a lot of difference. I'm, I'm very much in agreement there. I mean, obviously, you know, we see you as being incredibly entrepreneurial. You've had you've had a very distinguished career. Um, but what I'm actually quite interested is um, is for PIPs for Purpose Investment Partners. I mean, you you've just recently set that up. You've got a great board there in terms of what you're doing. What's that about? And um, how? What you've learned from you know the profit sector away um, is that helping you in this new endeavour? Yes. So for Purpose Investment Partners, I was involved in forming with my friend and long term colleague Mark Carnegie four years ago. And at the centre of that is the simple but I think really powerful idea that if we can mobilise business disciplines and access capital at scale in social purpose focused uh, organisations, you can do two things. One is you can generate financial returns that are appropriately risk-weighted and sufficiently attractive to be of interest to mainstream uh, financial institutions. And two, that you can do in correlation with that a really high quality and measurable job of social impact. A lot of that and the genesis of that in many ways, I was involved in partnership with others in the buyout of the failed ABC childcare centres in 2009. It was then and is now the largest provider of early learning and childcare in the country with close to 700 centres and staff of 15,000 and 72,000 children and their families in those centres. So it's big business, very big business. And when we acquired that, we turned it into a social enterprise. What does that mean? It means that we were very explicit about running it with both business disciplines and for social purpose. And that organisation, as a billion-dollar social enterprise, A, generated 12% return for those investors, most of whom were uh, high-net-worth individuals and foundations who got and believed what we're about. And B, it's done a measurable and deeply impactful job around a whole series of key social purpose indicators. So back to for purpose. What was striking to me and others then was that this is an opportunity that needs to be replicated. And if you think about the many sectors of the mainstream economy, think aged care, think further education, think social and affordable housing, as well as early learning, these are multi-billion dollar sectors. And if you could apply the same logic as we uh, successfully did at Good Start, which is accessing decent chunks of capital running it at board and management level with the combined notion of the skills and talent to drive business disciplines for social purpose. Uh, you could do that at, at significant scale and make a real difference. And so that's what For Purpose is about. And so we've just raised uh, a f with a first close of $67 million and uh, are in the process of doing a second close. And the aspiration is that we become a high quality multi-billion dollar fund across those sectors that we've mentioned. I think of it as capitalism 2.0, Caroline, you know, the idea that we can mobilise big chunks of capital, including institutional and super fund capital, make a real difference and uh, hold those two things at the centre of what we do, business discipline and decent financial returns and genuine measurable social impact. I recently did a podcast with Tim Minchin and he talked about the importance of um, systematic giving and how he really is trying to build systems into his own philanthropy so that it's actually, you know, it's not reactive or emotional. 
obviously at Future Generation, we have a model that enables that systematic giving. It just happens year in, year out for our shareholders. How important is it for philanthropy to be systematic rather than event-driven? I, I think that's really important. And that highlights Tim Minchin, who I'm a huge fan of. He's a man of many talents. He's not only a genius in music, he's got some pretty important insights into philanthropy. I, I think the idea of systematic philanthropy is really important, uh, particularly because we know and I've certainly learned over the last 20 years, the idea that you can affect significant change in some of those entrenched issues of social disadvantage in one year or two year or even three years is pretty problematic. You know, the idea that you need, and I say this having had the first person experience of running a nonprofit, accessing reliable, thoughtful, long-term funding is an existential challenge for many social purpose organisations. And if you know you've got reliable funding tied to accountability of performance, but that's over the longer term because it takes three to five to 10 years in many in many examples, in many ways to drive social change in communities and in education and the sorts of things that matter. If you've got philanthropists who dip in and dip out of things, it just makes it bloody hard. Uh, so I think at a structural level, it's really important. I also think that the idea that it becomes ingrained into who we are and what we do so that uh, for families or those who've made money, the idea that we do this in a thoughtful, systemic way, and really in many respects, it replicates what's obvious good practice in business, you know, to back people who know what they're doing, who've got a track record. So the idea that you bounce from one thing to the other constantly uh, is another thing that can be a bit of a curse of the of the sector. There are, you know, there are some some philanthropists, which I think is not particularly helpful, who'll back things for short periods of time. And even when they're working, it's like, oh, well, we do that. That was fun for a couple of years. Now we want to do something else. So consistent and reliable funding is as important and axiomatic for success in the social purpose world as it is in the business world. And I'm not sure that uh, all philanthropists are as sensitive or conscious of that as they perhaps need to be. So there is a lot of talk in philanthropic circles about intergenerational transfer of wealth. You know, how how do you or how do we all reach young philanthropists? You know, obviously you, you have your children. How are you encouraging them to get involved? We, 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 for example, have a family foundation encouraging the kids to engage in that and uh, giving them allocations where they do some homework and think about areas to give and things that they're passionate about and care about um, is an obvious way, which I think many families are starting to do. I think it's a values thing. I shared my family background, which is one that was deeply community connected. My wife, Jenny, and I have always enjoyed the involvement in community and she's been very deeply involved in a range of things. And I think your kids see that. I think the kids see that part a really important part of existence is how you engage and contribute to community. And, uh, you know, our children are now aged 31 to 26 and in different ways, I think uh, we're starting to see, which is lovely, that, that they're engaging and contributing to community and we'd like to think that that reflects some of the things as both Jenny and I were when we were younger that, that they are exposed to within the family setting. I think the other thing as well, you know, there's a, there's a huge intergenerational transfer of wealth. It's been pretty well documented, the explosion of wealth at the top end. And what I found really quite gratifying in the work of SVA uh, and more recently is that there are 
you know, there have been more foundations set up. I see a lot of families with the next gen coming through in their 20s and 30s being really actively engaged. And I'm a huge optimist on the on the Gen X value set. They care about the planet. They care about social issues. And when given the opportunity, many are voting with their feet in terms of both what they're doing career-wise and you know, where they're where, where they're. Uh, where their products of families with wealth being encouraged inappropriately so uh, by their parents to actually engage more directly in that so you know I'm kind of a I'm kind of an optimist on that I think these are really good things excellent and we're, we're beginning to see that a future generation as well so how would you describe the state of philanthropy in Australia you know how are we comparing with other with other developed countries and you know, how can we encourage everyone to do more yeah, I think there's a good news, bad news story in this. So my response to the previous question gave you the good news story, which I do think there's some positive movement at the station and a Gen X coming through. But it's a very topical question. There's the release of a report, a report which the Centre for Social Impact has been involved in, funded by Daniel Petrie, who's been a really positive activist on the data collection in this. And what the data shows is pretty challenging, and it suggests that despite that explosion of high net worth relative to reasonable comparables in the UK or the US, our uber wealthy think uh, net wealth of 20 million or more are actually pretty miserable. You know, that the giving levels in aggregate are generally about a fifth to a sixth of what happens uh, in other countries that you could reasonably regard as comparable. So that data is confronting and we can't run away from it. So that will tell you there should be a lot more to come. And Daniel's been quite a vocal activist, evidence-based activist on that. I think the way we encourage the change for that is we need to profile that. And I think we also need to highlight uh, what good philanthropy looks like and emphasise those examples where there has been. And I think there'll be a lot more to come, particularly from that kind of the tech billionaires who've been minted over the last five years or 10 years. A lot of them are that kind of next-gen 30s and 40s, and they're starting to be proactive around that. So I think we've got to, it's back to your earlier question, Caroline, we've got to find ways that that's profiled, that what good and strategic philanthropy looks like is visible and that there's a demonstration effect. You know, things like the giving clubs or uh, what the work that Gates did in attracting, encouraging and occasionally cajoling uh, some of his peers in the billionaire space to actually get off their backsides and give more is something we do need to do more proactively in this country. You've often talked to me about future generation and obviously your respect for Jeff Wilson. You know, why do you love this model? Well, I have I have a long history with Jeff and uh, what, an, what an incredible visionary and, and just a poster child example of somebody who's uh, been brilliant in funds management but a, but a person with a very deep and compassionate heart. And so the model the model of future gen is very much back to that language of business disciplines for social purpose. So what's not to love about a model where you access one of the best funds management operators in the business and you can connect that to thoughtful, strategic, long-term and impactful giving. And I think what you're doing with that is in a really powerful way both providing an investment opportunity, but actually, I've always felt uh, that it's a that it's a, that it's a really thoughtful and compassionate Trojan horse. I, I I know in terms of 
what you and Jeff are doing in driving, it's actually providing visibility on what good philanthropy looks like. And for those who are introduced as investors, I think there's all sorts of evidence that what you're doing is both providing a smart investment platform, but you're educating and encouraging people to be philanthropic and they're building a much more in-depth understanding of uh, what they can do. So hats off, I think it's fantastic. Markets are really volatile at the moment. And do you think this is going to impact philanthropy? Um, what what would be the, your words of wisdom to those that are thinking about doing something in not-for-profit space? I stick with it and stay the course. You know, to, uh, to your point, I think there's such a fundamental and positive dynamic about being involved in this field. That doesn't go away. And, you know, I remember vividly back to SVA, our funding base was very heavily dependent on uh, high net worths and foundations. And when the crash of 2007 and eight happened, we thought that could potentially be an existential moment, but it, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't, you know, the continuing generosity of spirit and practice of those uh, who supported our work um, meant that that was absolutely sustained through what was a pretty challenging economic period. And I think there's also a lesson in that to those in the in the social purpose world. Uh, the need in those periods often is correlated with more challenging econo- economic times. So the need for impact and social purpose often accelerates in really difficult economic periods. But the other thing, which is a deeply positive point, is that I think people get that and stay the course. And I think um, we certainly found, and I think we did a pretty good job of communicating to our supporters and social investors why their continuing support mattered, how much difference it was making. Uh, they backed that and, and they continued to back that with great generosity. In fact, we, you know, our, our giving levels increased during that period. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. I I really appreciate your time. Great pleasure to be with you, Caroline. Thank you.